0: The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own
1: and do not necessarily reflect those of the station.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time now for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, our media is giving us... Uh, <laughs> uh A lot to remember about uh, that part of our world, but uh, we want to remind everybody that um, there was a desert shield and there was a desert storm, and people should be aware of that. And we do this with all of our shows that uh, involve veterans or involve active duty or First responders. And that is that we start off each, each show with a moment of silence. And then we give you a wake up call. So let's get right into the moment of silence. We'll be back in one minute. Thank you for that moment, and we always like to make sure everybody is awake and raring to go, and we have just the thing. We brought it right out of the Army.
0: Feels good. Feels good. So good. So good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Pick them up. Pick them up. Put 'em down. Down. First to left, first to the left. Then to the right, then to the right. Out of sight, out of sight. Down the mic, down the mic. Drill
0: short, drill short.
1: Leading the way, leading
0: the way. Rock your soul, rock your shoulders. From left to right, left to right. How you feeling? How you feeling? Down the mic, down the mic. Drill sock drill short. Smoke me, smoke me. Drill sock drill short. Smoke, smoke, smoke me, smoke me. Feels good, feels
1: good. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, and you can't beat those Jodies and they will get you the rest of the way. And uh, I'm proof positive of that as I was uh, finishing up my basic and headed for AIT. And uh, I don't know who decided this, but those folks over in AIT like to run. Well, they want to run everywhere. And uh, at my size, I really didn't like the idea of having to run everywhere, but somebody did, and so we did, and so we sang our jodies as we ran in Fort Ord, California. And we have our host online, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Farsberg, and he retired, but that was after serving time in, that sounds like he served, not, you know. You didn't serve any time, but anyway, he was, he was in, uh, the Middle East for Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we're always delighted and remind people, get that piece of paper and a pen out where you can take notes because Phil has a real problem not saying something that's so important you ought to write it down. And, uh, there will be a brief test at the end of the show uh, on what what uh, Colonel Farsberg has said. So get ready for it, and here's Philip.
0: Hello, David. It's good to be with you again.
1: Oh, yeah. I love this show. And so do a lot of veterans. By the way, we want everybody to... Uh, Start going to our homepage. We're going to have more and more information up on our our homepage very, very shortly. And uh, I think any veteran would like what I'm talking about. So I'm going to leave it to your curiosity to uh, go to our homepage and see just what I mean. It's going to make a a very good gift. Anyway, back to you, Philip.
0: Well, David, uh, you know, I found myself yesterday being, uh, uh, questioned by some young men about my time in Desert Storm. And, uh, you know, I guess it was Desert Shield at the time. Uh, now these, these young fellows, they were probably in their early 20s, which means, uh, everything was over and done, uh, before they were born. But, uh, they uh they listened with some interest as I described um, how uh the uh Iraqi Air Force was comprised of uh some MiGs, Soviet MiGs, and some uh French F one mirages and even I think believe they had a, a few F uh, four uh Phantoms that they had gotten somehow and uh But they were completely ignorant of the fact that as soon as the air war started, the, uh, the entire Iraqi Air Force, anything that could fly, uh, was, uh, launched, uh, and went directly to, uh, Tehran and landed at an Iranian airbase. Uh, it was, it was really mystifying to me that, uh, that the Iraqis would do that with, uh, with their air assets, I, it, I understood why they didn't want to fight um, our uh, air force, and navy, and, uh, pilots. But uh, that I got, and and the coalition pilots. But the um, but what mystified me was that Iraq and Iran had, had a, a war going over the swamp that that uh, separates them. For, uh, decades, and, uh, and suddenly, uh, Saddam thought that, uh, the Ayatollah was his good friend that would, uh, take care of his aircraft for him. So, uh, that I was really puzzled by that, that move. Uh, but all the better. Uh, anything that did not fly to Iran and was not put inside of some sort of very deep, bunker revet but it uh, was probably destroyed in our uh, in the early stages of our air war um but uh but before Saddam had departed uh he uh, he had his air force flying up uh, along the border and of course uh, flying on the ob1 Mohawk, we had uh we our mission was uh side looking airborne radar and uh had to fly typically around 10,000 feet for a SLAR mission and uh, SLAR is side-looking airborne radar and uh, they didn't want our ground speed to exceed 180 knots uh, which uh, at 10,000 feet uh, equated to somewhere around 140 knots and then uh if there was any kind of tailwind, they wanted us to slow down. So sometimes we were sort of on the ragged edge of a, of a, uh, stall doing our missions. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, so the imagery would be perfect. We had to fly these, uh, gyro stabilized, uh, you know, autopilot tracks. So there was no, uh, no hand induced uh, deviation. And, um, uh, so suffice it to say, we were pretty easy target for anybody, uh, well, what, either surface-to-air or, uh, you know, air-to-air, air, uh, engagement would be, uh, pretty easy against us. So we, we had our tracks, um, you know, the, the tracks that we flew, they were, uh, typically, um, you know, outside the range of uh, Iraqi fire-and-forget missiles. Uh, in other words, they could they could fire a missile, you know, get close within range to us, fire a missile, and, and pull away, and the, the missile would continue to the target. So we stayed outside of what we knew the, the range was for that, and then one day, um, in an effort to look deeper and deeper into the uh, enemy rear, the... Uh, they gave us a, a track that was within that uh, range and I was a little concerned but I went up there and uh, flew I had a uh, um, I had a novel with me and I think it was a maybe a Stephen King book and I had a little something looked like a Pringles can full of uh, Slim Jims and uh you know, I was flying along on my little gyro-stabilized track, uh, being the pilot. Uh, my job was pretty much to monitor things, uh, what, you know, once I had it on track. And then the, uh, the observer, uh, and systems operator in the right seat, but he would, uh, he was busy, uh, collecting his imagery. And, uh, so here I am, kicked back, uh, reading my novel eating a slim jim when uh the AWACS calls me and tells me that uh in their coded way that there was an Iraqi uh fighter that was uh you know some miles nautical miles north of me uh at some radius some uh uh, they used a polar coordinate to say his distance and uh an azimuth from me and uh and then a few minutes later he called me up and told me that he was this same fellow was closer and uh, didn't really bother me too much. But then uh, he gave me another ab- advice that this guy was now almost to that edge of uh, where he could do the fire and forget on me. And uh, well uh, so then I became kind of agitated looking around and we had a we had a code word if AWACS had told us the code word Spider-Man we were to um, basically do a maneuver in order to lose altitude as fast as possible get down on the deck and head south uh, back to safety but uh, the next time AWACS called me was to tell me that uh, this fella had broken off his uh, his uh, track toward me and everything was right with the world and so I went back to uh, reading my novel and chewing on a Slim gym. and uh, then suddenly my radar warning receiver told me that I had a friendly fighter at my 7 o'clock position and uh, we weren't quite sure what the software uh, package was in that whole AN uh, uh, APR 39 uh, radar warning receiver, uh, and did it say that an F4 was enemy? Did it say that an F1 Mirage was the enemy or uh, friendly? Right, we didn't didn't know exactly what it, what it would say, so I wasn't really comfortable when it said friendly fighter at my seven o'clock. So I began to frantically search, you know, over my shoulder, at the, over my left shoulder, at that seven o'clock position is. Um, frantically as I could and uh, lo and behold a uh, British tornado fighter uh, pulled up alongside me and uh, he took a good look at me and I saluted him, he saluted and peeled off to the left and uh, well all that to say that the reason that this Iraqi had decided not to uh, go any closer to me was our combat air patrol, and uh, on that particular day in that particular sector, combat air patrol was being run by um, by the, the Royal Air Force uh, in their Tornados. And so, if ever I run into uh, a British, uh, former British Tornado pilot, I think I uh, I owe him uh, some thanks and maybe an adult beverage.
1: And that's one of those stories you'll never forget.
0: No, I uh, I won't forget it. Uh, but that's that's one of my uh, uh, kind of close calls during Desert Storm. Um, and of course, there was another one where I was flying, and uh, it wasn't quite clear if the if the transition time. To the new, uh, to the new, uh, identification friend or foe codes was supposed to be at, uh, at midnight local or midnight Zulu time. And, uh, flying along, uh, I started getting lit up by the Soviet, uh, SA-6 battery, but it was to the south of me. And I realized I was flying through the Syrian sector. And the Syrians, uh, who were our allies at the time had, uh, SA-6 missiles. And so I immediately switched over my IFF codes from, uh, from the, uh, Alpha to the Bravo, uh, selector switch. And, uh, and then, uh, things got all quiet. <laughs> uh, the, 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 they stopped, uh, acquiring me with their radar. So uh yeah it was uh were there were a few close calls. Um, and then well uh there, of course there were the scud missile attacks on our position at King Fod uh King Fod Air Base. Um, and uh yeah it was uh you know, for a conflict that didn't cost that many American lives—just uh, just under three hundred, I think—there um, was there was some some tense moments there.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I do when there are when I when I'm interviewing a, a veteran uh, is ask if they can name one veteran that can tell one story and uh nobody's ever come forth with that veteran so uh you know i think people that have never served and and the folks that have served because they can relate to what you're sa- what you're saying uh like the stories and uh, i know i do and um putting yourself in the position and telling you know the public how you were feeling at the time uh and then have a friendly having that tornado come up behind you that just that had to be a a relief of, of relief and um knowing that you had Friends in the neighborhood.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, long ago, they had taken all the weapon systems off of our Obi Wan Mohawk at the insistence of uh, the United States Air Force. Um, so my only uh, defense was a thirty-eight caliber pistol and my cat-like reflexes. So uh, <laughs> I was glad that they had come up with uh, some. Uh, some consideration for protecting me while I was up there. I will tell you uh, that after the conflict, we came back to Fort Hood. We were shown a briefing, and in the uh, in the Iraqi uh, bunkers that had been cleared out, they found these posters that were warning them about. You know, it was all in Arabic, except for the words "SLAR," SLAR, and it, w- it was an Operation Security poster telling them, you know, to be careful and do whatever they could to avoid our side-looking airborne radar. Which, I know. anyway, I don't, I don't know what they could have done other than not move. But uh, the. Uh, it, it was just a nice affirmation that we were real. They were very concerned about the uh, intelligence we were collecting with our SLAR gear, and um, and you know that uh, that equipment that we used in Desert Storm was uh, well it was about thirty years old, and uh, you know that it may not sound that old, but uh, consider the fact that. 30 years prior to uh desert storm was the very beginning of the Vietnam War. So um you know uh it it was pretty old technology, but it was very useful. It wasn't really developed for Vietnam, it was developed really for for the war in Europe and uh to determine uh if a uh, Soviet uh armored attack was coming across the Fulda Gap as you recall. Um, and uh and then there so the, the the Mohawk units in Germany spent a great deal of time uh covering that that area with SLAR. Um however uh, after desert storm um wasn't really necessary uh, because You know, Saddam had his, uh, all of his equipment, nearly all of his equipment was, uh, was Soviet equipment and all of his, uh, doctrine that went along with the equipment was all Soviet and, uh, tactics and his, uh, advisors even had, uh, advisors from the Soviet Union there assisting his, uh, his forces with, uh how to employ that stuff. And I, I can't say that it was very encouraging to the Soviet Union. I would guess that it played a fairly large part in convincing them uh, to cease and desist in their uh, effort to overcome us with uh, military might uh, in the Cold War. Of course, it just, uh, about a year after, uh, well, no, less than a year after we finished uh, in the storm, uh, the Soviet Union threw in the towel and said, uh, we're, we're not going to be doing this anymore. So uh, they, they just went back to being Russia and those other former Soviet states.
1: Would you say most of what you were doing has been replaced by drones?
0: You know, um, yes, I would say um, unmanned aircraft do do a great deal of this. Um, they have, you know, uh, the, the SLAR was very um, it was kind of crude technology. You wouldn't, you really couldn't see very good imagery. You just got basically a little square on a piece of acetate uh, as far as a, a moving target. And you could, you could locate that with latitude and longitude, but um, you know, this whole idea of, uh, what we carry around on our, on our iPhones, uh, or Androids are, uh, is just beyond what, you know, we could have imagined then. Um that you can, you could, you know, do a real time, uh, Little video of your birthday party and send it to your loved one on the other side of the world in near real time. Uh, just that, that sort of thing wouldn't happen. I know, uh, the army uses, uh, uh, uh these, uh, King Air aircraft that they've mounted some, uh, some uh, imagery, uh, products on there and uh, I know a friend of mine went and flew for a contractor over there in uh, in Afghanistan they uh, and they had uh, in addition to you know these cameras that they infrared capability so they could watch the um, they could watch the, the bad guys go out in the middle of the night and start digging in a uh Uh, a a howitzer round or something in the side of the road to make an improvised explosive device. And, uh, my friend said they would watch them and watch them all night till they were just about done. Um, you know, finishing up, throwing the dirt over it. And then, uh, just, just as they were about to leave, they would call in a, uh, (laughs) an Air Force, uh, fast mover that would drop a 2,000 pound bomb on it take out the the device and the uh, the proud workman who had just put it in place So uh, <laughs> it took some degree of joy in, in knowing that they had worked all night on this thing that was going to eventually be their death but such is uh, warfare
1: that's uh that's playing for the wrong team, isn't it? Yeah,
0: well, uh, you know, uh, actions have consequences, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, so. uh, I think the greatest line in the world is still Schwarzkopf when he's doing one of his interviews or one of his, uh, press, uh, Things and, uh, they're showing video and they show a guy on the bicycle riding down the road and, and he's hit and, uh, comes, now that's a guy having a bad day.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, or, uh, my favorite line from Ronald Reagan when
1: Phil, did I lose you? Oh, there
0: you are. Uh, he's, yeah, is that uh, President Reagan said his strategy for winning the Cold War was "we win, you lose." Yeah, <laughs> or, or "we win, they lose." But, uh, he was uh, quite eloquent with that, uh, you, know, people, and, you know. And you know, it's just that simple. You know, we're gonna, we're going to outdo you, and. Uh, and there's really nothing you can do about it. You know, David. It takes uh, it takes dedicated troops um, to accomplish this. And when you uh, when you understand the troops, when you understand what motivates them, uh, when you understand what they expect of their leadership, you can have the kind of soldiers we had. In Desert Storm, I, my guess, let's see, it would be about oh, we went to Desert Storm about uh, a year and a half into President Bush's uh, Bush forty one presidency, and um, so my guess would be the vast majority of the troops who uh, fought in Desert Storm had entered the service. Uh, under the watch of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. I know I had, um, I can recall in 1980, I was, uh, still in college and going to ROTC and, um, Jimmy Carter was the president and, uh, cadets asked me, you know, who was I going to vote for? I said, i going to vote for Ronald Reagan. And uh, they were all concerned. They said, he's going to get us into a war. And my response was, if we do get into a war. I want somebody who's going to be in it to win. If you recall, Jimmy Carter, uh, his uh, concept for the defense of Europe was something called the active defense and, you know, further looking into it, I said, well what this means is we're going to trade real estate for time and uh, and I said well, you, so what you're saying is we're going to run away and that was basically it um, thankfully uh, the gipper, Ronald Reagan didn't have that Attitude didn't ask his nine-year-old daughter how to uh, pursue nuclear policy, and uh, had a little bit better advisors than that.
1: You know, the and a lot of folks don't understand this that the uh, attitude of the commander in chief trickles down all the way to the lowest private in the in the theater and if you've got a good attitude and doing the best you can for your troops it goes a long long ways and I think that uh, Reagan and um, Bush and you know one of the smartest things Bush said was as soon as this is over with you all are going home
0: he yeah. said that for sure um, but uh, you know I'll, I'll take it a little step further uh, David and say that the, if you know the tone that's set by the commander in chief is not only noticed down to the lowest private, it's noticed down to that young man graduating from high school and deciding whether or not military service is in any way worthwhile for him. And, uh, that's what we're seeing right now is, uh, horrible, horrible, uh, deficits in, uh, in recruiting. And, uh, you know, when you, when you sit these young men in a room and, you know, basically tell them that they're women or, you know, whatever, I, I can't imagine the nonsense that's going on. There's a secretary of the army right now who's never served in uniform. Not even, you know, in, in the, uh, well. League of Women Voters. I mean, she. she uh, is just a policy wonk and she doesn't know anything about the army and she's gone in there basically to turn it into a woke uh, adventure much to the glee of our adversaries
1: and the head of the VA has never practiced medicine nor has he ever been associated within a hospital or in a medical resource in other words, um, we have a bunch of dummies in the administration that have no clue what they're doing.
0: And happy birthday to our current uh, commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. Mm-hmm. 81 years old, not really able to dodge a sandbag, but, um, you know, just... Uh,
1: Well, let me ask you, is the turkey going to give Biden the reprieve, or is Biden going to give the turkey the (laughs) reprieve?
0: Somebody sent me something today. Uh, It's a little picture of Joe Biden that says, uh, I will beat Donald Reagan this September. You can take that to the post office.
1: (laughs) And my experience right now with the post office... Uh, they've lost two letters for me, and um, the latest one I mailed on the 10th of this month and has still not gotten to Columbia, South Carolina to my son, and uh, our postal system stinks, and if you look at the people that are involved with it, they stink as well. In fact, you look at this administration, up and down the gambit, it's the poorest choice of people I've ever seen in my life, and no respect, no discipline, no experience, and just like you were saying about the head of the army... Uh, Why would, why would somebody choose her?
0: Oh, it's just to placate uh, a certain political group, interest group, Um, and you know they're certainly not our friends. These people—they're not—they're not not interested in uh, the security and safety of our republic or the continuation. I think in the words of Barack Obama, they want to fundamentally transform America. Anyway, I think we need somebody to fundamentally transform it back.
1: I uh, was watching, uh, and <laughs> as their slogan has gone, I have switched. And uh, I was watching Newsmax, and they... I didn't see the front of it, the the beginning of it, so I can't tell you who they were interviewing. I think it was one of the large groups that was protesting in Washington, but I wouldn't swear to it. But in their interviews and their work with, with whoever they were talking to, they uh, they said that they came up with that if we were to go to war, 70% of the people that took the survey would not defend the United States. And my return with that is find those people that said they would not defend the United States and ship them to Venezuela. But just seventy percent said they would not defend the United States. I would. Well, I'd give my last breath for the United States.
0: And, and of course, you you signed up with a with an oath uh, just to that very end. However, um, probably seventy percent of the people that I see uh, on a database day-to-day basis in the United States uh, I, I would not want them defending the United States just because I don't think um, they could do a very good job um,
1: you don't think they'd have your back? <laughs>
0: uh, no and uh, I think they would cut and run at the first uh, at the first sign of trouble I, sp- I find myself these days spending a lot more time around veterans, mm-hmm. specifically combat veterans. Uh, they are my community. They are the ones I identify with. You know, the Vietnam guys are the guys that trained me and uh, got uh, very poor treatment from the nation that they went to serve. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they're just, um, I, I can't say enough about them in terms of uh, their uh, selflessness and uh,
1: their valor. Just fantastic folks. Amen. Amen. And, you know, they have ethics and they have morals and... You know, if a Vietnam veteran tells you something, you can take it to the bank in 90% of the cases. Not every veteran is perfect, but at the same token, I'd lot rather have a veteran behind me and on both sides of me than any of these woke idiots.
0: Yeah, um... Yeah. You know, well, you know, and um, when you when you go off to combat and, and come back, you come back sort of a, a changed person. You come back with a different uh, outlook and understanding of life, right? You know, you, I mean, you know, life and. Quickly, and you're not uh, you're not guaranteed anything. Um, you're not guaranteed the next second, and uh, the little things that uh, would bother you uh, before you went away are uh, are not that important. At least that was my experience.
1: thank you for okay. your service Philip
0: yeah that's uh, it was my honor my distinct honor and I always feel a little humbled when I hear people say that that's you for your service uh, you know, I, uh, I, I thank them for my paycheck and tell them that I try to be worthy of that every day because I knew it came
1: From their tax. You know, I guess being in marketing and so forth, that our government has done a, a poor job in explaining really what the military is all about. I think a lot of people that either haven't, don't have relatives that have served, or friends, close friends that have served, think that all the military does is they're out to kill. They're out to kill. They uh, they carry guns, so they must be out to kill. Or they fly planes and they're going to bomb people. Or and Yet, I bet you, I'll bet you Philip, you couldn't find me a veteran that wouldn't say being in the military was the best experience of their life. And they're still saying it even if they've been retired for 40 years. And this is what people don't understand that never served and to make a statement like if we were invaded I wouldn't help fight for the United States It's just uh, I, I can't put my arms around it you know to make a statement like that because one thing and again this is this is This is how the veteran coming back from Vietnam, going through airports and being spit at and everything else, survived, was that he or she was not necessarily fighting for those that were spitting on him. He or she was fighting for that flag. And, you know, which makes up our country. And... A lot of people just miss the boat with what serving actually means. And, um, you know, I don't know. I can, certainly can't address what you felt or what I can only address what I felt at at Reveille and our flag flying high, going up the flagpole, and then... At taps and you could say one more day and we're protecting the flag and the flags protecting us because that flag doesn't stand for you and me it stands for all of us that are that have served and are serving right now and I can't imagine somebody saying I wouldn't fight for the United States
0: Um, you know, I, uh, you know, but I'll tell you this, when you, uh, when you get right down to it, uh, you, you may, uh, you may have various feelings when you, when you enlist or, or, you know, take your commission or enter the service um you know patriotism and you know valor and doing what's right and love of country uh but I can tell you when you get right down to it um you know in in the thick of things you're really you're really doing it for the guy on your left and the guy on your right you uh, you just have to um you know, all that other kind of goes away. I mean, it has to be there to begin with to get you there. And it's in the back of your mind when you're, when, when you're fighting, but, uh, really you're, you know, you're, you're looking out for that guy to your left and your right.
1: And it, it should be that way. And I should, yes. And, You're looking out for that person that's two feet from you, as well as that person that's on the other side of the world. Yeah.
0: That's true. And, you know, and your loved ones and the the place where they live, you know, your family, your wife, children, uh, parents. You know, and and for me, my uh, my uh, grandfather served in World War One, and my dad served in World War. uh, Really, wasn't any uh, question in my mind of what I would do. Um, So, um, I, you know, so I'm, I'm very glad that I served i I served when I did um, I th- uh, my hat's off to those who go in the service today for the right reasons not to go mess things up or whatever but uh, but you know to really um, serve uh, in the face of adversity that is you know self-induced by our leadership um, you know I'm, I'm grateful for the people who stuck it out during, uh, during the post Vietnam, the, the Ford and Carter years, um, because a lot of the very good people bailed out, um, that, you know, wouldn't be part of it. It was a very difficult time. But those, those who stuck it out are the ones that, uh, that, you know, helped, me and others, build up what we got. And
1: uh, I'm very grateful for them. You know, uh, Pronto, or Tanto Pronto, uh, from Benghazi, his fame was from Benghazi, and uh, he always started and ended and still does as far as I know, with the line from John fifteen thirteen: No greater love hath man than to lay down his life for a friend. And that's what the military is all about. It doesn't matter if you're 10,000 or 30,000 feet, or you're pounding dirt or you're in an APC or tank or whatever you would give your life or just like you said, the person on either side of you, in front of you, or behind you. And and you know in the back of your mind, they would do the same.
0: course, that's what uh, that's what causes the bond and that's what uh, makes a real community out of uh, uh, out of our troops Uh, I just uh, I'm very glad for those who have served and you know like I was saying about the, those intervening years between Vietnam and Desert Storm, and the you know the Carter years, leading right up to you know Ronald Reagan's rebuilding of our military, um, the uh, you know one of the, one of the wonderful things about the United States Army is it is an unbroken train. The army's gotten. Bigger and smaller over the years, but it's always, it's always remained since, uh, since April, uh, of 1775 when on they're at Bunker Hill and, uh, or rather at, uh, Lexington and Concord. And those who served there trained the guys that served at, uh, at Valley Forge, trained the guys who served and they, sir, trained the guys who fought the Yorktown, and they trained the guys who, you know, fought the War of 1812, and they trained the guys who fought the Mexican War, and they trained the guys that fought the, uh, American Civil War. They trained the guys that fought the Spanish-American War, and they trained the guys uh, that fought the, uh, World War they trained you know and so on into history and, you know and I had a part in training guys you know that went into uh, Iraq and Afghanistan late and uh, and those guys uh, I I could could not feel more love and affection and and admiration for those guys I know they they probably look up to me but I I definitely look up to
1: them you know you, you just made me think about the folks that, that trained me and yeah. I never I can say I never no matter what they had you doing I never got individually upset with that person because you know as they're training you, whether it's how to dig up a landmine or whatever they're training you in, you have this sense they're they're looking to save your life.
0: Yeah, it's serious business. And there's this matter of attention to detail. Very important.
1: And it, and it comes through and... Sometimes you realize it much later in life as I have, but, uh, you know, those DIs, drill instructors, they wanted, you could just feel it. They wanted, here's what you do in this case, you know, and they had probably gone through that case and they knew how to get you through it, and they wanted to. And that's, you know, that's what makes our military the best. And it's it's like, uh, you know, Air Force jocks are the same way in their training, and Marine jocks are the same way in their training. And everybody want you to get to the other side being alive
0: yeah that's a good thing the uh, it, uh, you know attention to detail is, is so important and I think that's why a lot of uh, employers value military service uh, what they're looking for an employee, um, you know, you could say, "Well, you know, I, I just all I got was an honorable discharge." Well, guess what? It says right on it, honorable, right? How many people you meet during the day on, in their normal course of business, you know, have that epithet tied to them, honorable? Um,
1: it's important. It is. you know. And, uh, you know, not only is it important to veterans, but it should be important to civilians that have... And like you said, the guy that's hiring somebody, he knows that if he hires a veteran with an honorable discharge, he's got a keeper. A guy that knows how to take orders and give orders. A guy that knows how to say yes, sir, and when to say no, sir. And will stand up for what he believes in. And that's, you know, it's more than I can say for any of these television hungry woke that want to take us and our country in a different direction. And, uh, as was said the other day on a, on a Christian broadcasting show, we have to stand up for what we believe in and we can't let woke change or take our country. And the way to do it is through radio, just like we're doing right now and television, and listening to the truth, and, you know, that's that's another thing about the military. You don't get away with telling too many lies in the military.
0: Um, yeah, well, I mean, I would say, unfortunately, if you've got stars, I think you've you probably do, but that goes back to my uh, current attitude about uh, our senior leadership.
1: Well, nobody's perfect. But you know what? We have talked to ourselves, or I have talked to ourselves, right out of time, and uh, we're going to have to take it to the barn, I'm afraid.
0: Right. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to uh to talk today and uh I hope the folks got something out of it.
1: Oh, they did and and uh your stories are fantastic and uh keep them coming. All right. Okay. Okay. We'll thank to you, you next Phil. week David. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Sir. The views, opinions and content of the show
0: hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own. And do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.